Are you ready to live your best life, be stronger, and fall in love with yourself? It's possible, and it's inside you, but you need to unlock the power within. Welcome to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody used to be afraid to take risks. It took some stepping out of her comfort zone to get her there. Along with her guests and their stories, Jody will help you to live your best life ever. Now, here's your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Hey, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. I am your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, and thank you so much for joining us once again. I am super excited about today's guest. Um, just before Halloween, a few days before Halloween, and I love Halloween because. I, you kind of get to dress up as your alter ego and nobody could judge you for what you're doing. And, you know, who knows what goes through people's heads, but it's just really fun. And my guest today is going to be talking about the paranormal and spirits and ghosts and things that sometimes we're fearful of. I know that, you know, I used to be a huge scaredy cat of a lot of things. I'm still afraid of the dark. But one of the things I'm not afraid of anymore, and we're going to get into that big time, is I'm not afraid of ghosts anymore. So as you guys know, because you join me every week, and if this is your first time joining me, this show is all about educating you, empowering you, and inspiring you so you can go out and live a fearlessly authentic life. Because isn't that what we all want to do? I do, and I'm hoping that you want to do the same. So I'm going to get right into it because I'm just so excited to introduce my guest. I'm going to give you a little background about him. His name is David Oman. He is a producer, creator, and co-writer, author, a native of Los Angeles. Oman has been intrigued by the paranormal from his early childhood and has been curious about the spirit world ever since. I think since you were like five, if I read your book correctly. In 1999, Oman and his father, I love your dad, by the way, started to build the house on Cielo Drive, just down the drive from the infamous Sharon Tate murders, a.k.a. the the Manson murders. He just completed his first book, Ghosts of Cielo Drive, The Afterlife of Sharon Tate and the Spirits of the Oman House. Now, I'm going to stop there, okay, because you have a lot to say. And if I go on and on in this bio, I think that you could introduce more about this information than I can, and I don't want to drone on any more about this. So welcome to the show, David Oman. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you very much again for having me, Jody, in this uh, few days before Halloween. Yeah, it's, um, it's just fun and, you know, spooky. And, you know, as I was reading your book, which I found really, really, really interesting, um, you know, I realized that normally when I would read a quote-unquote scary book, I would get scared. But ever since my dad passed away 10 years ago, and I feel his spirit around me, and he was one of the, he was my best friend. He was one of the kindest men you would ever meet, and everybody who knew him would agree to that. So I feel my dad around me all the time when I'm at my studio, like barbells, weights just like drop from the shelf. Uh, It doesn't really happen that much in my home, but things will be moved around. I'm like, hey, daddy, you know, and so I realized that, you know, ghosts and spirits were not something I ever really spent a lot of time thinking about, but I was hoping that after my dad passed, I would continuously feel him around me. And thank goodness I do. 
So I want to start from the beginning. I love the the intro to your book, which talks about the um, Native American War, Mexican War, and and the um, the people that died in the war, and and the the uh, people that passed away and were buried in the land where you're living. Can you give everybody some background on that? So, because it was an education for me, and I loved learning about it. Yeah. Um, well, what I found came to find out after I bought the lot in 1999 through different sources um, was that the area had a lot of Native American energy in it. And I'm not talking doing research. I'm just having friends of mine that are gifted, quote unquote, psychic, and that had come over to the area. And after we both finished building the house, which was in 2002, and I moved in, I had more of my friends come over and they said, oh, wow, the whole, this area has just got Native, I said, what Native American? I said, I said, you mean Indians? He goes, yeah, well, that's a disrespectful term. But they said, yeah, for lack, I said, what do you mean? He says, well, it just has this energy that's, that it feels thick of Native Americans. And I'm like. What does that, what does that mean though? Well, just like I said, sensitives and empaths and people that are clairvoyant connect to energies that we can't see with the human eye or even, you know, outside just feeling a resonance of. And they said there's Native American. And we went down to what is now or what is what was the Sharon Tate home. And it was destroyed and demolished and they were under construction. And Harvey Weintraub, the man that owned the property, invited my father to take a look at it because he's trying to sell it to my dad. So we both went down there and I later on gone down there with a friend of mine, again, a sensitive. And she said, oh, my God, there's just tremendous Native American. She goes, oh, yeah, it's really powerful. So I started to do research and I found in the Benedict Canyon Association magazine annual I was, my neighbor had it in front of his driveway. I mean, in front of his, in front of the gate and I picked it up and I started just thumbing through it for no reason. I come to a page and it says the history of Benedict Canyon and the native. And it says this, the article is about this spot at the Beverly Hills first women's club. And it says that little known to most, you know, Caucasians and the most people, natives of Beverly Hills now, there's a history pre the settlement of Beverly Hills becoming Beverly Hills. And it goes into the history and it says in 1842, there was a battle, a small little insurgent battle where some group of Native Americans came down from the hills into what was the ranchero at Alpine, which is now Alpine and Sunset Boulevard. And the woman, Maria, I forgot her last name, who was the widow of this Mexican soldier who was deeded a large swath of land, around 4,500 acres of prime real estate, a hundred and, what is this, close to 190 years ago about, in the 1830s. And she had all of this huge, huge piece of real estate, which was done by the Mexican government to basically start the development of the territory of Southern California and to reclaim it from the Native Americans. So she would basically turn it into a ranchero and develop it and have livestock and farms and farmed land and develop it and make the resources more hospitable to humankind or 
for the Mexican government's purposes. So in 1842, as I said, this group of Native Americans that were basically, I found out, of the Tongva tribe that was throughout the entirety of Los Angeles County, basically this group that was in the Benedict Canyon area was forced, or Beverly Hills in the flats, was forced into the hills and up into the canyons, into the less desirable land that the Mexicans at that time didn't care about. So they were living off the land, forced up into the mountains, and they would make raids going incursions onto her property. Well, on this one occasion in 1842, her handmen that were there basically took up arms and went after the Native Americans. And there was a running battle from her ranchero about a mile away up to up at what is now Chevy Chase and Benedict Canyon drives. And on the spot in 1925, when they broke ground to build the Beverly Hills First Women's Club, they unearthed the remains of the three Native Americans that were killed on the spot that didn't get out of there. The rest of the band got back into the hills. And apparently it turns out that was all a huge walnut grove. And they dug the holes, buried them right there. And in 1925, some 80 some odd years later, they uncovered the remains. And it was noted. And on the spot, they, in the article, it says that there's a boulder on the spot and a granite boulder, and there's a brass placard on it commemorating this incident. I said, no way. So I ran down there in my car, and sure enough, I'd never, I saw this bunch of bushes, and hidden obscurely in the bushes behind a few of the little shrubs was this 150, 200-pound boulder of granite. There's probably about two feet by about three feet, and there's a 12-inch by 12-inch placard and brass on it commemorating exactly what I'm like one. And I turn and I look up to where my house is and I'm less than a mile away as the crow flies. I'm going, because I'm up on the bluff, I can see my house. I'm saying, oh my God, from where my house is to here, I can see the distance. That's crazy. So it turns out I did more research and I said, oh my God, this is the area where the Native Americans were living because they were disposed from the flatlands where they were living and pushed up. Come to find out that there was, all right, we had Zach back into, I hate to change the timeline, but I have to go to, to the point of reference about the Native Americans that you referenced. That's not true. There was never, Zach Baggins in the episode of Ghost Adventures, season nine premiere episode, he claimed after I told him about the one Native American, all right, let me, all right, let me finish my story. So, yeah, after right. he moved in in 2004, and, and, and after I moved in in 2002 and 2004, I had a psychic by the name of Lisa Williams come in the house. So that was 2006. She came in after I was, she saw me on Ghost Hunters. And she goes down into the Earthen Wall Room, which is the third level of the house. And what it is, is in the East Coast, you understand this, because if you have a house that's built as a, as a basement, Sometimes somebody will leave the roughness of the mountain of the hill where they excavated it out to use it as a cellar. So they have to take advantage of the natural um, coldness of the earth and they build a cellar. Well, in my case, my house is built on the side of a house. And since it's on the side of this amount, it's built on the side of the hill. And because the third level has a portion of the house that's built right into the, the earth, my dad and I had a pissing contest when we were building the house and he wanted to turn the third level into an apartment. And I said, 
I didn't spend all this time and money building a theater room in there with all the wiring in the walls to then afford that to some tenant. Uh-uh. And he goes, well, this area that we were developing to be a kitchenette, I'm not spending another dime. I'm not going to put a wall up. I'm going to let it sit and look like crap and you're going to have to live with it. And I was like, is that a threat? Because I know better than to worry about a threat that's not that impactful upon my life. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, you can spend the." And he said, inflated the cost. He goes, you can spend the $25,000 to develop this area into a kitchenette then when you have the money. And I was like, you are threatening me. He goes, if you don't make this third floor into an apartment, then I'm going to make it that you're going to be uncomfortable with this the way it is. And I'm going to force you into acquiescing. And I was like, oh, is that so? That third floor, that third floor was down below, right? Right. Well, the top floor is on the street level. Right. The second floor. And as you understand, the, 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 if you had a box and you had it on a straight line and you had no hillside, it would be one thing. But because the hillside goes like this, he basically built the house like this. And then each subsequent floor is shorter. So the top floor is on the street level. So it's 60 feet. The next floor down is only 45 feet. And as you go to the third level, because of the hillside, it's only 40 feet. So what he's done is, is where the wall is that would be behind, in front of which, which is the hillside, he built in an, an, a space where he could have a storage room, originally it was supposed to be the air conditioning room. And on the other side of that wall, in that same area, is the water heater. And what it is, is the hill, he didn't put up a wall to basically hide the earth. So what right. it is, is it's all right. open. So the so hills, you were, hills is here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, do you feel that the way, because of the way the house was built, that you had more, more spirits capable oh, no, no, of no. visiting you? No, okay. no. Okay. All right. The fact, that, the fact that. that there's earth exposed <laughs> has nothing to do with the spirits. Okay. Meaning that, that it'd be, if, it has more to do with, well, let's, let me first finish the Lisa Williams thing and then I'll come back to why the house has the dynamic that we're talking about, why, what makes it okay. the Mount Everest of haunted houses and the Disneyland for the dead, as Barry Taff had said. So he said, well, I'm going to leave it open. So I said, fine. I said, that's great, Dad. So I left it untouched till about six years ago in 2014. And what had happened was is that I basically had – decided that I had some extra cash. I had my labor, contract labor come over. And we decided, look, the way it was designed and set up was it has the plumbing available. It was built ready to go had I decided to in the future. So it didn't screw me. The plumbing was there. The electric was there. So we decided to do it. I went to um, Home Depot and got a vanity that was prefabbed. We slapped it in there. We got the cabinets. (coughs) Excuse me. And for about $5,000, we built the kitchenette, put in a refrigerator, put in a microwave, (coughs) excuse me. And, you know, I did it myself. And I said, gee, dad, because my father had passed um, a couple years earlier. And I said, well, pops, I said, 25 grand. You're trying to scare the crap out of me. Bluff me. I said, I still got it done for five. And it was like, (laughs) so I put the kitchenette in and what happened was Lisa Williams comes in there and she goes, Do you now Lisa, know you Lisa Williams is a sensitive. She's a famous English psychic who has, who had a TV show on called the Lisa Williams experience. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. He wrote, sent an email to me. I saw you on the show. I'd love to come there to see your house and experience it for myself. And I'm like, is this real? And so I called her up and she goes, yes. I said, you're not wanting to do a TV show here. And she goes, no, I want to see it for myself, which really, really showed me that there are people out there that have the integrity and, excuse me, and the the, the reality is that they are fascinated by the paranormal. It's not just a facade, an actor playing a part, a person posing as a paranormal investigator. She really wanted to see it. And she said, she goes, no, I want to see it for myself. I'm, I'm very curious. And I, it afforded me such a deeper respect for her and a level by which I would basically look at other celebrity paranormal personalities and put them up against that litmus test. Because let's be honest, she was the only one after that episode within about a couple of weeks, she reached out to me. Nobody else did. And it was shown all over the country and all over, you know, so people saw it. And it was the highest rated episode to date. And I knew that the paranormal community was aware of it, obviously, because of this show. And also the show My Ghost Story, which I had done a year earlier. And she was the only one that reached out to me and wanted to see it on her own with the sincerity of, of just saying, I want to see it. I'm curious as hell. Let me see it. So she came over and she went through the house and it's funny. I'll never forget. She walked in to the top of the stairs, going in two steps, going into the living room. And she turns to her right and she looks at the bar and she goes, Oh, do you know you have a big party in your bar? And I'm like squinting, like looking like, like saying, what the flying hell is she? Look, what, what do you, and I'm like, you must be daft. And she goes, oh, no, no. Oh. She goes, Sharon's there. I see Jay Sebring. I see Rudolph Valentino. And I'm going, and she goes, and there's a couple of other people I don't recall, really recognize. And she goes, oh, and there's some Native Americans. There's like four or five Native Americans that are in a circle talking around it, but it looked like a fire. And I'm like, one. And I'm blown away. I'm like, one. And I'm thinking to myself, She's not full of crap. She's dead serious. And she's honest. And I'm like, and I said, really freak you out. When I first heard it, I, you know, now I'm living there. Let's see, this is 2006. So I'm already living there for four years. And um, I've had plenty of things happen. And this is the first person that comes in and starts telling me this stuff. And I'm like, Okay, what else? And she goes, well, she goes, oh, they want me to tell you. They just adore, love you and adore you. And I'm going, because I'm taking this as the rock salt truth, going, holy shit. But this was something, this wasn't totally foreign to you because when you were younger, you experienced some, I, I don't know if you would call it paranormal, but I, I, they say that when you're younger, like five, six years old, and you're this pure, innocent, child that that's the time to experience seeing spirits and you said when you were younger you did have some experiences in your parents house so is this something that's always been with you your whole life and do you think that you have this special connection and why the spirits just love you well so so at least it tells me as I'm like and I'm like my jaw goes slack I'm going I said, are you kidding me? She goes, oh, no. She goes, Sharon especially says, she goes, she really appreciates your letting them. She goes, they all appreciate you letting them hang here. And I went double jaw like on, like, what? I said, what? I said, I said, what are you talking? I said, you serious? I said, let's start from the beginning, Lisa. I said, I said, I'm a human freaking being. There's spirits. 
I have no stupid illusions that makes me feel that I have something on, on them, that I have leverage against them. I said, are you, I said, are you kidding me? I said, Lisa, I said, look, I said, I said, I've seen the pictures of how Sharon and Jay and the others had died at the end of the street. And I, because I did research, a, you know, a few months earlier, I'm doing a book, which, which was, which turned into this book some 12, 13 years later, or 14 years later, I actually finished it. But I went to the LAPD to do research to see if, when they, when the murders were discovered, if they found any bloody, you know, items on the side of the hill, like a rag or a cloth or something that would tie in to why this property was so active, paranormally speaking. And she said to me, she goes, well, they really appreciate you. you know, so I saw the pictures of how they died. So to me, I was like, I was horrified. I mean, I saw over 300 images and also the La Bianca murders the first time I was there, because the first time I was there, they brought me into the, they took me into the room with a police officer to, to watch. They didn't steal anything or take any pictures of the photos, but to figure which photos I wanted to apply for to have released to me so I could use them for the book. So the first time I got there, I went through all the La Bianca photos because it said Tate La Bianca on the box. It was only Tate, it was only La Bianca. Right. So then I came back the second time and they went into a vault, an, a, not a vault, they went into a room way in the bowels of Parker Center and they're standing in this room and the back room is an old eight, 19th century sta- freestanding safe, like out of the gosh John movies. It's five feet tall, it's about three feet by three feet. And it's got to be this olive drab green color. And it's got gold leaf on it. And I'm like, and it's got the big brass one handle there on the dial. And I'm like, holy crap. So he opens, the officer goes in there and opens it up and looks and there's a box that says Tate. And it's a box about yay big. And it's just loaded with, so they take me into the back into that secured room. And I start looking through the pictures it blew me and this away. This is why you were doing the research. This is while you were doing the research for your book. So I, right. I think it's so interesting that you were like you were kind of sensitive to all of this stuff, and then you end up. Your dad gets in touch with you, says, "I've got this law. It was super cheap. I remember you like talking about that." And then all of this stuff happens. All of this, you know, paranormal spirits, ghosts, and you're finding more and more and more. And you know, being intrigued, it's you know, when you were younger and then finding yourself, oh my goodness, like you are here, like living with these spirits that it must've been a little mind blowing and boggling and overwhelming to, to, to have people come in there and feel all of this energy. Yeah. Well, to me, it was never scary. It was always fascinating. I've always been fascinated by spirits and I, and I just like you, have been terrified of the dark, of vampires, of every type of movie, uh, horror kind of a character, from the mummy to um, the hunchback to the to Doctor Jekyll to everything. To, it just I was consumed by fear of those types of things until, um. You know, my mom passed away in March 22nd of 2005. And then when I went to the house, as you read in the book, I ended up going back to the home to see, you know, when literally five, ten minutes after she passed away was there. And the whole place was illuminated with candles because the lights, power went out. 
later on, I found out it wasn't just the power in the house that went out. It was all West LA that the power went out. When my Literally the second that my mom passed, it was just like, and when I saw her, everything that she told me as a child about, you know, you're afraid of the dark, you know, this and that, and uh, the things about, we're all going to die, you know, some point in time, I'm going to die and you're going to die and every, your father and you. And it's like, what do you mean? She goes, that's just the way it is. It doesn't go on forever. And I wasn't so afraid of it. It just kind of perplexed me. And the dark was the scariest thing. So when she passed away and I go into the room and it's all lit up with candles and she's sitting there frozen in state, literally like in motion forward. And she's got this like, like she's saying something and I touched her skin at that moment, it was almost like shedding of an old skin, like a snake sheds its skin every twice a year. I felt like I shed a skin of every single fear and point of contention in my life that I was afraid of. Everything just went, just like felt, it went like isn't this. That, just like isn't that funny? Yeah, it's funny how when somebody passes or something big happens, and I know you were close to both of your parents, and I've, you know, my mom is still alive. Um, and, but when my dad died, I suddenly stopped being afraid, as I mentioned at the beginning of a lot of things. And, yeah. you know, we're going to be taking a break in about a minute or so. So when we come back, I really want to talk about how we shouldn't fear the ghosts, why they're here, why the spirits, well, maybe not why the spirits are here, but why we shouldn't fear them because um, there's so much, don't you think there's so much to learn from, from the afterlife, you know, if you keep an open mind? Yes, but not in the way I think you're applying it as far as that we can, like, like as if, like, for instance, if this is the afterlife, it's not like you can pick up a book in the afterlife and get an enlightenment from it. The enlightenment is right. from learning the from the experience and understanding it. It is not being able to deal, delve in across the veil of the existence and grab and bring back. It's for you to deal with that situation and to learn from it, to learn to how to not be afraid of things and how to let things flow and to realize that everything's happening in its due course and its due time and worrying is taking away from your power of being in the moment of the now. And I want to talk about that when we come back. So hold on, everybody. We'll be back in a few minutes with David Omen. Thanks, everybody. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. On Fearlessly Authentic, Jody talks about mental and physical well-being, and the key to both starts with proper nutrition. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan was created to help your body feel better. Whether your goal is to lose weight, gain muscle, or just feel lighter and more energetic, following this meal plan can help you get there. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a 21-day plan to help you learn the most important things about the food we eat and what foods are right for you based on your goals and activity level. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a real plan for real life. This is not a diet, but a change in lifestyle. 
The plan is simple and easy for you to follow. In the 21-day plan, you will receive meal ideas, snack ideas, a grocery list, and a 21-day journal crucial to your success with inspirational quotes to keep you motivated and keep track of your progress. The key to success is commitment, consistency, and willpower. Be fearless and trust the journey. Go to JodyFit.com to purchase the JodyFit meal plan now and use the promo code podcast to get 25% off. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at voiceamericaempowerment.com. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments you may have. Send an email to info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. That's info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. Now, back to Fearlessly Authentic. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Fearlessly Authentic. I am Jody Harrison Bauer, and I am here with my guest, David Omen, and we are talking about spirits, ghosts, and some other gruesome murders that took place and spirits that are still around and in David's life. And we're going to talk about that. But we were we have so much to talk about. We were trying to finish up a conversation about the psychic that came to your house that was telling you about all the people in your house and thanking you for being such a great host. So what was <laughs> that they loved you? So what was how did that make you feel? What did what did you like what was going through your head while she was telling you all of this stuff? Well, after she was telling me all that stuff, I was like saying, you're serious. I said, I have the most deepest, sincerest empathy towards they, those specifically the five people that died down the street, because I had seen these images of their horrific deaths. And I said, and I also knew that, that Rudolph Valentino famously died of an appendix of an ruptured appendix. And he was 20 some odd, 30 years old at the height and pinnacle of his success, his career, his professional career, not his personal life. Cause it was a, it was a mess at that point, but still these people had their, all of these six individuals that died within a proximity of my home, relatively speaking, relatively close had all died right at about the point at which their lives were just starting to begin. And people say, that's not true. The beginning was at five, six. No, the fact is these were adults whose careers had finally been established and they were moving on to their lives into their, you know, the formative, the big time years of their lives. And they're all cut short. Do you think that has to do with where they were living now? How far away were they living? living because they all lived in the same house down the drive from you right right gene harlow rudolph um (laughs) gene harlow's house is up the street which is connected to jay sebring that house the harlow house is up benedict canyon about a mile from here 
But that's where that okay. is where Jay was living. The tie into Gene Harlow is Jay Sebring was living there, who was Sharon Tate's ex-fiance and also was the hairstylist to the stars. So he was working on films and television shows and also establishing, as we now have it, men's hairstyling, professional men's hairstyling to the public. He created the Sebring Institute, which was a... Um, a forerunner to uh, Fidel Sassoon and all those other men's hairstylists that then started opening up. He was he was there, right? So he was there the night of the murders. He was he was one of the people murdered along with Sharon Tate. Right. So do you think that there is you know when I was reading your book and and listening to other things, did Lisa think that all of these murders occurred and all this bad stuff happened for a reason or is it coincidental or? Um, the murders took place because Charles Manson ordered the hit, so to speak, on the people that were residing at the Sharon Tate house. Rudolph Valentino died in 1926. Um, like I was trying to say that his has nothing to do with that. But the fact, no, she didn't say that there was any connection that a lot of people speculated that the land was, was cursed long before Sharon and Jay were there. And theirs was determined because of the fact that they were on that property. And it was, uh, that's not only nonsense, it's BS. And the worst part about it is, is that um, some individuals in the field of the paranormal on television have made hay out of BS and have lied and have gone to great lengths to embellish one thread of information and turn it into a mountain of crap. Um, based upon what I spoke and told was told by Lisa Williams, as a matter of fact, about seven years ago in 2013, when Ghost Adventures came and Zach Baggins came, up to that point, I did not publicly tell the story of the Native American buried Correction, and let's back up so the audience understands the premise, what we're talking about. Lisa came downstairs to the third, through the house, and she ended up in the earthen wall room, which we discussed. She enters there, and she looks up in the left corner of the wall in the, in the Mount of Earth, and she goes, oh. She goes, do you know you have a Native American who's buried in this Mount of Earth? I'm going, what? No. And she goes, well, apparently he's telling me that he and his horse were riding on the horse path, which is now the driveway, to the end of the street where, this, where the Tate house stood. She goes, there was a plateau there that just a level pad of land that looked down upon the canyon and it created a great advantage, a great vantage point for the oncoming to see if anybody was coming up the canyon to do anything. It's like, oh, wow. And she goes, yes. And it also, she says, also had ceremonial properties to that energy. And I said, she goes, the land was, she goes, it was also used as ceremonial land for worshiping. I was like, okay. And she said that his horse had lost its footing, stump, fell down the slope of the hill, and both horse and rider broke their necks upon a, by, the, by the means of when they fell down the hill, 60 feet down the slope, there was a tree that stopped them, but by that time, their bodies were both dead. And she says that they weren't discovered. They were just left there and their bodies decomposed. And through the years, mud flow and dirt slides had basically covered the remains and interred them into the earth. And I looked at her, I said, are you kidding? She goes, oh, yes. She goes, he's up there. And I'm going, 
I said, hi. Uh, you know, and I, again, this is my, see, you got to remember the reason why it is that I have this perspective. And again, this is a year after my mom had died in 2006. So in general, I have this thought that, you know, ghosts are ghosts, they're energy. We're people, we're physical. They're totally separate. They can neither affect us nor we affect them, that it's totally two separate individual states of existence. And I thought to myself, you know, the idea that through religion we've been taught that ghosts can do this, they can possess, and I go, yeah, uh-huh. I said, how come certain religions ascribe to it and certain religions don't? And I said, because it's man-made. And when people want to talk about something about between the spiritual world and the physical world, there's a huge, vast void and expansive space between the two of them. And the idea that there have been countless religions pre-Christianity, pre-Judaism, pre-Buddhism, pre-Taoism, Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever that have existed, because man's been civilized, so to speak, if we can call it that, for some hundred thousand years. And let's be honest, Christian Judaism says its calendar goes back 5,600 years. Christianity has its existence going back 2,000 years. And anything before that is dismissed. And I'm like, hey, they were as human as you and I are. They were homo sapiens. They had a brain. They didn't have technology that we understand, but they had their own technology. Why is it that we bash their state form of religions and we say that ours are better and including the Egyptians and each one had its own idea of the afterlife. Different interpretations, not all converging in parallel lines and making each other one to one. And I started realizing, you know, saying that's just mankind trying to deal with the rational to rationalize what they don't understand. Right. And you mentioned that uh, we talked about that because the fear, and we mentioned that right at the beginning of the show, that um, you said man creates mythology to deal with what they don't understand. And you're explaining that perfectly right now. And that makes so much sense. And the, we talked a long time about ghosts being friendly and I remember you saying something about just like the ghosts that are the spirits, ghosts, I don't know how you refer to them specifically. Are they the same thing, a ghost and a spirit? It's the same thing, right? It's all semantics. Let's okay, be honest. Okay, semantics. Just, okay. You know, oh, no, that's not the same. He's like, shut the hell up. It certainly the hell is. What's with you folks? Oh, no, a ghost is spirit and a gin and a gin. I'll have some tonic with that one, please. What the, you know, the idea that that languages have different words and they all mean the freaking same thing is the box within most people don't want to accept and deal with it. Oh no, that's just it's like, I'm an actually said, tell me something. Where did you get your degrees, Mr. Professor? Where'd you get your, 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 your psychology degree in parapsychology? Really? And to me, it's like, it's just, again, trying to wrap your fingers around the unexplainable until you have to come up with an answer as to why this. And that's what I keep coming back to. It's right. We always want to know the reasons for why things are happening, why they're happening. And sometimes we can't, we can't put our finger on it. Right. We can't acknowledge it, accept it, whatever it is, whatever it is. And I like that you have this no BS approach 
to a man as a man living with all of these spirits around him and saying, listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of been put in this situation. I was intrigued with it. Then I find myself living among all these spirits and it's cool. And you've had lots of people, you know, you've had movies and um, videos. You've been guests on so many different shows. And so, like you were telling me, Lindsay Lohan came to your house, Sylvester Stallone. You told me that story. I don't know if you want to share that. But Sylvester, yes. Lindsay, oh, God. Okay. So, why don't we, I want to talk about, let's talk about Sylvester. And uh, I want to talk about the friendly ghost, too, because I don't want to finish this this interview without talking about friendly ghosts and why the ghosts are friendly. And if you're like not a nice person, why don't we talk about that for a second? Cause I know sure, we talked sure. about that a lot in, and you said, you know, like, Hey, listen, if you're like a piece of poop person, you're not going to have the friendliest spirits around you. So yeah. Tell me a little bit more about how you, how you came up with that, that well, conclusion. So after Lisa came to the house, I didn't tell anybody. I just said, not saying a word. So people would come in, different psychics, and then the different uh, personalities come in. Um, Marianne Winkowski, the, the real-life ghost whisperer. Jackie Barrett from America's Psychic Challenge. Um, what's his face? Oh, God, I'm trying to... Um, James Von Prague came to the house with Dr. With, um, not Dr. Phil, Larry King Live. They did an episode, a segment, excuse me, a segment here. And each one of them went into that excuse me, I got the hiccups, that room and said, there's a Native American here. I feel this presence. I'm going, and I'm thinking, Lisa Williams didn't tell you because you guys don't have a click together because each one is like an independent cell unto itself and they have their own group of followers so nobody really talks about it. And all these other people start saying the same things and I'm going, independent conversations with these people telling the same thing that Lisa told and there's no cross over no overlap or overlay between one to the other. I'm like, holy crap. And that was what really started to hit, the, hit me over the fence going, wow, that's nuts. So when Zach came in and I told him, he turned it around on the episode as David lives on Native American ceremonial burial grounds. And I'm like, one guy died and was interred on the mound of the earth, you know, got his remains were interred in the earth. How does one guy dying by accident turn into a cemetery or a graveyard, especially on the side of the hill when there's plenty of flat land? And he went off and started telling people, oh, blah, 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 blah. I'm going, you know, when it came back to me two years ago from Scott Michaels of Dear Little Departed Tours, he goes, well, you know, all of Benedict Canyon was Native American burial grounds. I said, where did you hear that? He goes, well, Zach Vagans, I said, he's not anything of an authority of anything except bull and lots of it. I said, he's no, he's no archeologist. Feel- he's not painting. I said, and I've done the research. And funny enough, when this thing about the native Americans in 19, it, it was in a newspaper article. So I started searching through the newspaper articles through the twenties, the thirties, the forties, during the developmental era of Beverly Hills during construction pre the Repatriation Act of the U.S. government in 1976, where you had to repatriate when you found bones of a Native American, you had to, to classify it, you know, repatriate those bones. And none of that had been in existence. So the idea that there wouldn't have been a story in the newspaper about Native American bones being found on some construction site up here in Beverly Hills in the canyons wouldn't have made the newspapers bull. There was none except for 1925. 
So that's how I said, that's not true. They bury them dead every, any place but up in the side of the hill. Right. So you've learned so, so much about this world. So why do you think that most ghosts are friendly? Like Casper the Friendly Ghost. I keep thinking of that cartoon and Ghostbusters. I, I mean, like I've had every song go through my head this week and so on and so forth. But like, you know, like I know my dad is a friendly ghost. I know you talked about in your home that you woke up one morning or something and things were moved around. Like your mom's purse was in the other room. There was well, that was that was that goes back to Helter Skelter. That's creepy oh, crawl. Okay, okay. That's, that was when right. I was a kid. That was All creepy right. crawl. The so, but, yeah. But as far as ghosts are concerned, let me just yeah yeah okay get to that. I, I apply a very simple, rational type of a point of reference to the paranormal, which is, is the afterlife cruel and insidious? And people go, what do you mean? I said, well, some, some myths about the paranormal. There's a thing of where they say, when, be careful what you wear when you leave the house in the morning, because if you die, you're eternally going to wear that for the rest of it, you know, your, your afterlife. And things like, you know, how you die is how you're going to come back as a spirit. And I started, and to me, I start to use a rationale that is called um, expansive, uh, what do I call it? Expansive um, platform ex- thinking, meaning you take the simplest of thoughts and you take that simplest of, of ideas and I stretch it way, 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 way out to the end. And people go, what, what, what do you mean? I said, well, look. I'm going to apply some of what you've just said to two of those myths to things that I've personally experienced when I saw the apparition of Jay Sebring in the middle of the night some 16 years ago in mid-July. And when I saw his apparition, he was not looking like a corpse. He didn't look like American Werewolf in London circa 1981 where the, where the victims would come back dead, that the dead victims would come back. And each time they came back, the decomposition of their face had gone a step further and a step further and stuff. So finally, when they last saw one of his best friends, he was basically a skeleton. That's horse crap and great for television and film. That's not how the works. As I said, when I saw my mother in 2005, it changed my whole perspective about life, death, and spirits. And I saw her frozen and I touched her skin and literally... I could get like an eighth of an inch, maybe a quarter of an inch depth of suppleness. And then it went firm and it was frozen. And after that, I pulled my hand back and said, that's not my mother. The energy that was in my mom is not there. That's, I I said, that's a mannequin. That's a mannequin of my mom. That's not her. She is frozen. She was ice cold to the touch and stone solid. This, you know, rigor mortis had set in, so I couldn't push my, and it just made my whole thing sing. You know, saying this is bull about the ghosts and stuff. When your when your soul leaves that body, that's it. The umbilical cord is slapped off, cut, whatever you want to say, and that soul goes here. The body goes somewhere else. So, for instance, Dr. Taff, who's a parapsychologist, who was here in two thousand and six five said to me that, you know, the least haunted place on the planets, on this planet, the least ha- of haunted places on the planet are graveyards. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, outside of, you know, graveyards, which are battlefield graveyards, think about it. He goes, You're, you take the dead, <coughs> you take the earthly remains, the dead body, the corpse, 
and you put it into a, the ground or into a mausoleum. That's the repository for that piece of flesh. But the spirit is long since removed from the body. And by the time that body goes into the ground, it's some, in, in some religions, it's the next day. In some religions, in some at times, it's, it's weeks, months later. Body and soul are now separated. They were once like this. They're now two separate, in, in separate beings. You're going to tell me that once that body goes into the earth, that the spirit's going to sit there and hover over the decomposing body and look down upon that decomposing body, and that's their eternal damnation is to watch themselves rot from the flesh to the point of which there's nothing left. And my point is, is how cruel would the afterlife have to be that the most egocentric son of the you-know-what narcissistic SOB would have to be forced to watch his body decompose in the grave. And the, I, the, I, I just, I love that you're saying this. I love everything that you're saying about it. I completely agree with you. That's not why I love it, but I do agree with you. I do believe that if whatever your belief is, it doesn't change body, anything. Right, the body goes could, on the ground, it's cremated, but the soul, the soul continues to live. And I think that if you have that connection enough, being open-minded, open-hearted, whatever it is, you are going to feel that soul in your body. Now, I have two sisters. They don't feel my dad. They don't, they don't ever feel his soul around him. I feel my grandmother and I feel my dad. Now, and my daughter, I have a 31-year-old daughter. She was born on 613, which was my grandmother's birthday. My dad died on 613, 10 years ago, which was my daughter's 21st birthday and my grandmother's birthday. My daughter, daughter's due date was 6789 and she was born on 61389 and then my dad died 10 you know when she was 21 so 10 years ago mm. so it's just his spirit i believe is just so strong and he's not hovering he's 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 out there having a great time i feel it i mean i i feel him all around me all the time and that's what gave me peace that's what made me stop being afraid you know like you said about your mom well, you're, first of all, the difference is, is you're very open, and for some reason, which is ironic, because between the three sisters, one of them is going to be, you know, have no blinders on, is like to say, and the other two are like this, have the blinders on. And that's why I say it's about conditioning, I just heard a voice say. It's about mental conditioning from a young age. Every person is an individual, and that's why they say when you're young, you were talking early in the show about we're receptive. It's not that we're receptive so much as we don't have the blinders of society put on that say this you can't see anymore. You can't believe in this. You can't do this. You can't. And you're basically brought into form of what they want you. Me, I've always been open-minded and always thought outside the box. And I have also openly as a child went to church with friends, went to temple with friends and kept an open mind to see everything. Because my mom said, it's a big world. I don't want you feeling like this is a narrow perception of life, that that's the way it is. There's other things out there besides this religion or that religion you have to be open-minded about. So I kept it very open and I saw things and I realized that there was a certain amount of control. And at a young age, I just said, you know, I saw the Catholic church with my friends and I saw the Jewish temples and my friends. And I said, you know something? It's all about controlling you. It's all about bringing you into gosh darn line as they do in the military. And people that are in the military have gone through military school and military training understand about taking this, this raw, as they say, we're taking this raw mass and we're going to make you and mold you. Exactly what they do. They mold you. 
Right. I never right. got molded. I never allowed myself to believe, even though my folks said, you're too sensitive. It's like, I can't help it. I'm not going to change the way I am because that's how I'm wired. You don't like it too bad. I'm, um, I'm, I'm very sensitive as well. And I, you know, I had to let go of my fear a long time ago and I made a lot of changes in my life. And that's one of the reasons why I named the show Fearlessly Authentic. And I feel that one of the reasons that I felt like we were super aligned in a lot of reasons that we talked about today and previously on the phone was that you got over that fear. And so you live very, in my opinion, after talking to you, fearlessly authentic. And so how, how do you continue to live a fearlessly authentic life or what does fearlessly authentic mean to you means being honest means being honest about everything about about how you treat people how you feel about people about how you interact with people it's it's a matter of thinking about you know putting yourself in somebody else's shoes for a second how would you feel if that was you you know, and watching other people ridicule people and going, you know, saying if that was me and I was getting ridiculed, I'd lash out. How would I feel if I was a person ridiculed? I'd say, why am I doing this? What's the point? It's about being responsible for one's own actions and thinking beyond one's own self and thinking of others. Because as soon as you do, you afford them the opportunity to feel like they're received, they're received that they're being heard understood and listened to, and you're not denigrating them. I do have a problem with people, though, that go out there in the paranormal field and say things like, oh, you know, this is going to happen if this happens. And it's like, really? And I call them out on it because I cannot stand the myth, the propagation of the myth of the paranormal. Oh, that's a demon. It's this and this. And And that's why I love having you on the show for those reasons. And we could probably talk (laughs) forever about this because I find it so fascinating and you are fascinating. If people want to know more or where they can get your book, go ahead, tell them. If you would like to get the book, and here it is, as a matter of fact, Ghosts of Cielo Drive, you can go to ghostsofcielodrive.com. That's the only place it's available. We're working on getting an electronic version of it. But the <laughs> Microsoft Word's being a real pain in the ass about the formatting of it. Um, and you can also go to theomenhouse.com and uh, house at the end of the drive.com, which is the movie I made about my experiences here. And um, youtube.com forward slash David Omen, O M A N, to see the videos that were shot here at the house. Fabulous. David, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Um, It was really, really fun to have you. I knew this was going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween um, to you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. I will see you next week for another episode of Fearlessly Authentic. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week to Fearlessly Authentic. Please listen again next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and unlock the keys to a more powerful you.